Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the GWORD today, Dr. Michelle Bishop, who is a molecular biologist, a genetic counselor, and now an educator. And she leads the genomics education program as part of uh, Health Education England. And we're going to learn all about it. Michelle, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me today. Tell us a little bit first about how you got into this field, how you came across to the UK, like how did um, how did all this happen? I suppose I really first got um, interested in ge- genetics at that point, um, back when I was in high school and I actually read, and this is really going to show my age, um, Jurassic Park. And I just got fascinated by DNA then and that kind of kick-started the whole process Um, I went to university, did uh, what was called then an ordinary degree in science, but again, just really gravitated towards genetics. In Australia, we have an honours degree, which is a postgraduate degree, and got into molecular biology then. So that's where I kind of landed first. But I always was gravitating towards the more people aspect of genetics and genomics as opposed to just staying in the lab. I enjoyed the lab, but I really loved that interaction. So I then trained as a genetic counsellor. And I did that in Melbourne um, in Australia and worked as a genetic counsellor for a number of years. But at that point, we're starting to gravitate towards education and getting more involved in the education, particularly of healthcare professionals. So I did my PhD then in genetic education and was fortunate to have um, amazing supervisors, uh, Sylvia Metcalf and Clara Gaff, who are very well known in the genetics education fields and actually more widely in genetics. And that really kick-started my whole career in education. We then moved over to the UK back in the end of 2008. So we've been here for quite a while now. And I started work at the NHS Genetics Education and Development Centre, as it was then, and worked with Professor Peter Farndon. So I've been quite fortunate, I think, in my career, even though I've kind of moved around in different areas. It's allowed me to get a lot of experience in different areas, but it's all kind of funneled me towards education. And since I've been here in the UK, that's what I've been focusing on. And now it's led to me being the education lead at the Genomics Education program. Wow, it sounds like you've had some great mentors along the yep. way, starting with Jeff Goldblum in, um, in Jurassic Park. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he kick-started the whole journey for me, yes. <laughs> and um, what was it, the, I, I remember watching it as well, which also sort of betrays my age in the cinema, and there's that, that great bit where they're, they're kind of opening the, the steam-filled kind of frozen containers, like... Yeah. and sort of the magic of yeah. science. <laughs> I, I don't know actually what it was that just captivated me, but I was really fortunate in my last year of um, high school that I won a scholarship to go and spend two weeks at the University of Berkeley in California. And actually that was my first introduction really to DNA because I, um, when I was at school, I really didn't, I did 
basic biology, but didn't really delve into it much deeper. I was doing chemistry and physics and maths, um, which I have to say was not my favourite um, scientific subjects. But biology and genetics and I just really worked really well together. And um, it just kind of sparked my interest. And yeah, it's just it's just something that's followed me throughout my entire career. I may have moved around in different aspects, done different um, parts, you know, around genetics and genomics, but that's been the constant theme in my career. And so if there's a, let's say, 12 or 13 year old kid listening to the pod who's just watched Jurassic Park, maybe not probably not even on a DVD anymore on a streaming video service. What what advice would you give someone who's interested or excited about the field if they want to sort of get into the field? I would say that they need to follow their interests and their passion. Uh, I think that's what drives all of us really in doing that. Not to be afraid to kind of move from different areas to areas. So I actually found at the time when I um, was at thinking about university, people were pushing me very much to go into medicine. But I actually really wanted to do the the science degree because I wanted to get that really delve deep into understanding what was happening. And I thought I'll get that much better through a science degree. So I would say follow your passion. That's what I've always done is always do what interests me and um, what I find interesting. But also don't worry about whether you need to chop or change. I think a lot of um, kids these days think that they have to make a decision at that age about what they're going to do for the rest of their life. But actually, more and more of us now have got these portfolio careers where we do move around. And actually, that experience really helps provide different foundations that you can take forward with you anywhere that you go. So just don't be afraid. If you try something and you don't like it, try something else. I couldn't agree with that one more. And um, for my uh, degree, I did medieval history and computer science and um, have been about as decisive as that ever since. Um, And so it strikes me just across that career narrative that you just explained, you have an interesting perspective because you've, you've got an understanding of the science, You've got an understanding of what that looks like in a clinical context, like in a hospital or doc- with doctors and so on, but also that patient perspective from um, the the first phase around counselling. Um, just bring that to life for us a little bit. Like, what kind of people were you seeing? What kind of questions did they have, and how did you help them? So I worked both in a prenatal setting um, and I also worked in a familial cancer setting. So I was seeing patients that were really at in some cases, at the two ends of the spectrum of the life cycle, um, really. And I feel that actually each patient is different. And what I found about genetic counselling was that while you might learn about the science, you might learn about the condition, inheritance patterns, things like that, that may stay pretty constant depending on who you're seeing. The families that are coming in to see you or the patients that are coming in to see you will all have a different story, will all have a different perspective about how they may understand the information, how they may adapt to that information and what they will do um, with that information. And I have to say that actually working in prenatal, I found the whole decision-making process that people go through absolutely fascinating and how Different people, when they're presented with the same problem, will actually work through it in very different ways. And what information is really important for them to make a decision, which may be completely different to the next person that walks through the door. 
I think the one that really sticks out in my mind the most, which was actually on paper quite what I would say should have been quite a straightforward case. So it was a couple who were in their early 40s, unexpectedly pregnant and had been referred because um, their obstetrician being in Australia, there's a lot of private healthcare. So obstetricians was concerned about the age risk and was referring for, for testing um, for chromosomal anomalies. And when I spoke to them and, you know, took a family history, um, identified that actually in their very first pregnancy, which happened in their early 20s, they unexpectedly had a child who had Down syndrome. So this suddenly became a family that had very much a lived experience of having a child with um, with Down syndrome and so knew very well what that was like. So it completely shifted the dynamic in terms of the conversation that we were having. But when we actually had a conversation, what was really interesting for them is that there was never a question about whether they would terminate the pregnancy if the baby was found to have Down syndrome. They were very upfront about that to start off with. But for them, the big decision was whether they wanted to know during the pregnancy. And in the end, they decided they didn't want to know because they wanted to have as normal a pregnancy journey as possible without anyone talking about Down syndrome. And it was just fascinating to watch the dynamic between the couple and how they actually came to that decision. And my role was really just guiding them in that rather than giving them yes or no answers to anything. And I found that just seeing how people work together to work through these these problems um, that they're often faced with, sometimes unexpectedly, just really, really interesting. And it's something that I absolutely loved about my role as a genetic counsellor. It's fascinating, isn't it? And um, we recently led a large public dialogue around the concept of newborn sequencing for particularly for to pick up a risk of or, or or the reality of an early onset childhood condition which is genetically driven and which is treatable, which you could do alongside sort of the heel prick test and so on. And just talking to parents, potential parents, uh, midwives and so on, everyone was super supportive of this idea. Um, but then actually you get into quite subtle nuances like when do you want to know? And this is just you know, the yeah. point you made about the pregnancy and the Down syndrome. Actually, we don't want to know during the pregnancy. But, um, we're, but we know that we're fine with it either way. Similarly, if uh, we were talking to uh, a mother of a kid who has uh, Duchenne mus- muscular dystrophy, she was saying, look, this is great. And if, if we can get treatment to a kid earlier that will help them more than if we get that treat to them later, that, that's really important. And she said, but also I wouldn't give up the first year of my baby's life when I knew nothing about this for anything, because it was such an amazing and special time. And so, yeah, that emphasis, I guess, on, as you've put put it, sort of education and and choice and kind of just helping people make those choices, not necessarily that there is a right or a wrong choice um, in there. That's that's fascinating. And so I guess the the link from that to education seems clear, right? You're, You're explaining these things to people and so on. What is it, to some extent, you could say, well, we need to educate everyone about everything in medicine, right? We need to teach them about x-rays. We need to teach them about, I don't know, what happens when your bone breaks and, and heals itself. Why is, why is genetics and genomics different? Like, why, why the, the special focus on this? I, in a way, don't think it should be any different. I think it should just be part of, I heard someone say, and I wish I could remember who said it, but said they they want at some point, they wish it wouldn't be called, you know, genomics education or having a focus on that. It's just part and parcel of 
health education and it's just as you say yeah. it's just the same as what we would consider you know that everyone needs to know about anatomy everyone needs to know you know about biochemistry and it's just one of those extra things not seen as this separate area but I suppose because it is relatively new especially around genomics I would say that you know people are becoming far more familiar about genetics now and we know that genetics has been integrated into curricula for for quite a while now so um, people who have come through those programs are, are more familiar with it but I think because it is new people do see it as this added extra that they need to to know about and in some ways that can be quite a barrier to actually educating people about it. Yeah. And with the, the genomics education program that you run, like what's the focus of that? Like, who are you trying to educate and how do you know if you're succeeding or not? <laughs> That's a really good question. So we um, were really established in the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And um, it really was um, in response to the 100,000 Genomes Project. So a number of our um, staff, uh, me included, were uh, moved over from the NHS Genetics Education and Development Centre, which started um, in response to the 2004 white paper. So it's been around for a while. And we moved over to um, Health Education England and the Genomics Education Program. But our main focus initially was around supporting the NHS staff who would be delivering the aspects of the 100,000 Genomes Project. Through that process and, and building on that, we now have a much wider remit where we're really considering the entirety of the NHS workforce. So if you think about everyone who works in the NHS, that's like 1.4 million people. It's like, apart from the Chinese army, it's like the world's largest employer yeah, or something, it's right? A fifth, it's the fifth largest employer, <laughs> which I often use when we talk about, about this, that actually it's a massive remit. But we do break it down by saying, you know, there's the clinical workforce and then there's a the non-clinical workforce. But essentially that is who our audience is, is the NHS workforce. And not only the current workforce, but also the future workforce. So we have to think about those that are going through their training as well. And our remit really is to ensure that every Everyone who is involved in genomics has the right knowledge and skills and, and um, capabilities really to be able to perform their role in delivering the genomic medicine service. So that could be anyone from who is, you know, consenting someone to have a test or discussing about testing, or the really important healthcare scientists who are involved in actually doing the tests, bioinformaticians, genetic counsellors, the clinical geneticists, but also anyone who works in mainstream, but anyone who could touch along that clinical pathway. So even, you know, people who are involved in transporting samples, um, people involved in taking the samples, people involved in commissioning um, the services. So it really is quite wide. And all of the people you've just mentioned are really busy people. Yes. They're coming to work every day. They're doing their thing. They're saving the world. How do you engage with them, enthuse them, kind of connect with them to engage in this? Because it, it strikes me that all of us have this sense of, oh, we should be doing more reading, more learning and so on, but I'm just so busy. How do you get through that with 1.4 million people? Uh, it's a challenge and it's something that we yeah. haven't cracked yet, I would say, but it's not unique. 
to genomics. It's something yeah. that is really challenging and it starts right at the beginning when you're talking about curricula um, for training programs. I mean, anytime you go and talk to anyone who's involved in curricular development or overseeing curricula, they always talk about curricular crowding. That's There's just too mm. much that they're trying to put in there. And I think the classic example for me is when the um, RCGP curriculum came out for general practitioners. Um, when it first came out, the book of the curricula almost weighed five kilograms. And then they had to produce another book that was a summary of the curriculum. <laughs> it, was, it was just incredible what they were expecting people to know. And I mean, we were fortunate to be able to get genetics in there. But again, it's just a, a small bit of their entire working professional life and what they need to know. So it is a challenge. We work really hard on that. We've got a really good team that actually, you know, focuses on that and it's at the forefront of our minds all the time. We're very conscious that we need to go to the healthcare professional rather than expecting the healthcare professional to come to us. So we're always looking for ways in which we can assess really how healthcare professionals normally access education and then make sure that our education offerings are there as well. So when they're going there to look for education, there is genomics rather than um, asking them to be proactive to try and find us. Sure. Um, so marketing is a really big area actually of our yeah. work. It's not just about education, it's it's marketing as well. Fantastic. And um, we've talked a bit about healthcare professionals. I'm also really interested in the process of how like quote unquote normal people get smart on these topics. I'm, I'm always Im impressed, um, amazed and kind of humbled talking to families who are, are going through a sort of health situation where genetics and genomics is, is part of that. Maybe someone is sick themselves, maybe they have cancer, maybe they have a sick kid um, and how often they have become basically world experts on the condition um, are often mobilizing um, others in the community to kind of do something about it and so on. It's, it's hugely inspiring. And then I'll talk to someone in another context who's not sick or who, who doesn't have a sick kid or whatever. And they're like, yeah, you know, DNA, whatever stuff, um, Gattaca, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everyone in, in the UK, if anything, needs to know about genomics. And how can we, I guess, help people reach a level of understanding that is useful to them at the, at the right time in their lives or in the right context? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough question, really. And I, I mean, I have to say that I have less knowledge in that area, I would say, um, more, I'm more with healthcare professionals. But I think it's, ideally, I feel that people should have the almost the same level around genomics as what they do about x-rays. Like people know what x-ray is, people know what it's used for, and people know where to go if they need any more information about it. And it's almost just breaking that um, that barrier in terms of what the word means. I mean, we've even found with some healthcare professionals, just even saying the word can be challenging. They don't quite know how to pronounce it. And yeah. that can be a barrier in engaging in any discussion if you're not confident in actually how you pronounce the word itself, let alone finding out a bit more about it. But I think also it's um, genetics and genomics just often has this um, mystique about it. And people just think it's really complicated. And because of that, I suppose it's a bit like maths in the general population as well. They, they instantly think, I'm not going to know anything about it. And that can be a barrier to then learning about it. But I have to say that, you know, things like COVID, as, as horrendous as the last 18 months have been, it actually has brought prominence 
to genomics. People are hearing about it in the media. Um, you know, people are doing some quick animations about it to help explain it. You know, the news um, is, is talking about it. It's being presented in a much more um, easy to um, understand manner. And it's being people can understand how it's applicable to them as well, because COVID is touching all of us. And just the fact that you're hearing people just talk about PCR, like PCR tests in everyday language now, is just remarkable to me. When yeah. two years ago, if you said to someone, what's a PCR? Nope, most people would never have heard of it. So I, I do think that, you know, the mainstream has quite a lot to offer. I have my thoughts on that about how people might use genomics in, say, um, storylines that they've got. And, I mean, you raise Gattaca, that's always something that comes up when people are talking about genetics and genomics. But, you know, it would be lovely to think that um, anyone who's writing any um, scripts or anything would call on experts to ensure that the scripts are as realistic as possible. Because I do think that's where a lot of people do get their information from, is from watching television, watching movies. But it's seeping into the, into the mainstream media a lot more, which is raising the awareness, which means that people are wanting to know more about it. We just need to make sure that they've got really good sources of information to get when that curiosity is triggered. So if there are any exec producers from Netflix or <laughs> yep. uh, Amazon Prime listening, Dr. Michelle Bishop, just, yes. just, Google, just Google her, <laughs> available on LinkedIn. <laughs> so I'm tempted to ask if I gave you a million quid and said, um, let's produce a, a film or a TV series about genomics, like what would, um, what would the story be? <laughs> oh gosh, I'd really have to think about that. <laughs> so you were saying earlier about the level of general understanding of genomics getting to a point of something like x-rays. We've touched on curricula you know, for, for actual doctors at various master's levels, I guess all the way back to school, and how much there is for people to, um, to learn these days. How do you think we can make this as engaging as possible? It may not, it may not necessarily be a Netflix uh, series, but how can we try to bring what can seem quite, quite dry and kind of um, technical topics to, to life for people? Yeah, well, we very much um, in the genomics education program always try and deliver um, information around genomics, around cases that are very relevant to the healthcare professional group that we're talking to. So really bringing it to life through as realistic situations as, it, as we can provide, but also it really helps solidify how genomics is relevant to that healthcare professional role. Uh, so we, we don't or we don't start with going in with the, the science. We, we flip it on the side and talk about a patient first and what's happening with the patient and, um, I suppose, pick up any of the genomic aspects that may be relevant to that and then talk about, you know, what the underpinning knowledge is um, that you would need to be able to deal with that issue. So really making it as relevant as we can. Um, we've also um, tried to draw on um, more peer-to-peer education as well. So in my experience in actually educating people, I found that, you know, I'm not a medical doctor and I would always find that having a medical doctor with me, if I'm ever talking about um, genetics or genomics, is far more helpful because they will hear from their peer and go, well, if this person thinks it's important, then maybe it's important to me, rather than having someone from outside come and just tell them 
what they think they need to know. Uh, so we, we've tried to do that. We've got a number of videos on our um, website that have got, you know, a cardiologist talking to cardiology peers, um, a GP talking to her um, primary care peers and etc like that and we found that's been quite effective as well and we use multimedia all the time to mar- try and make things as engaging as we can I have to say quite personally I'm a, a visual person having words on a on a page is not really going to do it for me but give me an animation give me an infographic or something and I'll get far more excited about it and more engaged with it so we really try and provide all our information in a many different ways as we can to try and you know really grab the attention of people but also ensure it's a way that they like to learn too. Absolutely and we've touched on a few of the kind of professional roles involved in the what can be a reasonably complex kind of patient pathway and kind of treatment pathway for these kinds of conditions. Clinical geneticists who look at the data and the insights and kind of piece them together into what's what's happening with this with this patient and what do we therefore do. Genetic counsellors who um, help uh, an individual or a family kind of through a situation. As genomic techniques become more and more part of the mainstream of healthcare, do we just need another hundred thousand? Uh, genetic counsellors <laughs> and if so where do we get them some people are talking about ai chatbots for genetic counselling yeah. um is it is it that stuff as it becomes more mainstream needs less counselling because people get more used to it there's all of these kind of balls in the air make sense of them for us like how, how on earth do we do this without the whole system exploding okay so uh, i probably should preempt this by saying this is really my personal view and may not necessarily reflect <laughs> the views of health education england um but i mean i'm a big proponent to increase the the workforce of genetic counselors i mean it's my my home profession so i would say that but i do think that uh the days of where any kind of tests that you did around genetics or genomics went through clinical genetic services um, are gone. Um, thinking back when I started clinically, you know, 19, 18 years ago, you know, we were seeing, as, as I mentioned in one of, you know, stories I said before, you know, I was doing um, counselling around tests around advanced maternal age, which is just something that would never touch a, a clinical genetics department now. And quite a lot of my work was also around carrier testing as well, which I really think think we'll probably um, leave clinical genetics and we could perhaps train up um, other areas that could that could cover those particular, I suppose, more straightforward um, genetic tests. I think that we need to embrace technology. Uh, and I think that actually the pandemic has shown us that actually we can embrace technology. And in fact, it's far more useful than what we may have thought of um, in the past. But I don't think it will replace um clinicians. I think they're, um, you know, just thinking back to what we used to use back in the day, um, when I used to do, as I said, advanced maternal age counselling, I used to have a standard um, presentation that, you, you know, anyone could do. And in fact, we recorded it so it could be, re- you know, just given to people so that they could look at it, which just gave the basic information. However, the decision-making process, I think, needs more a nuanced approach, which perhaps um, a bot at this point may not be able to do, you know, picking up body language and picking, picking up facial expressions or, you know, little things, clue, clues like that can really help you determine, you know, where the conversation needs to go or whether you need to go to um, ask different types of questions or provide different types of information. So I think there's a way in which we could work together with technology and it could actually um, help relieve some of the pressure. There is no denying that, especially the specialist um, 
professions are extremely stretched at the moment. And that's only going to get worse with mainstreaming because they're going to be called on to support their their colleagues. But I do think there's also a need to increase the workforce. Now, where we get them from is always going to be a big question. Um, I would have to say that if I just think about genetic counsellors, because it's probably the profession I know more about, is that, you know, one issue is about funding them. You know, their their training is funded um, in England. So we have to be thinking about commissioning and we'll be fighting with all other um, areas to get those spots as well, because you know, just because we think genomics is the most important um, specialty, everyone else thinks that theirs is as well. Um, there's also training capacity. You know, even if we increase the training posts, is there enough people in the system to be able to train them? I don't think we'd have a problem actually getting people onto the training program. Um, genetic counselling is exceptionally popular. Um, it's one of the most popular specialisms that um, really is commissioned through Health Education England, especially in the healthcare science arena. But I think it's more about how the system can cope. And I think there's going to be a bit of a lag between trying to increase those numbers and ensuring that the system has the infrastructure to be able to support them. Yeah, it's um, I was going to say there's a there's a sort of marketing component to this as well. Right. Getting making people aware of um, of it as a profession. And it's interesting, this broader debate about kind of AI and jobs and so on. Genetic counselling is one that quite often pops up in those debates as the kind of job that didn't exist, you know, a generation ago. Um, and as you say, actually, in some ways can work um, hand in hand with technology quite well. And I, I saw something recently, which I was really struck by, which was um, about the success of text message based and kind of chat based um, services for suicide risk. Mm. Um, that actually, it turns out in the, in what is an incredibly intense um, and sort of personal situation not everyone but a a proportion of people actually prefer to have a text or chat based system to interact with someone than actually talking to someone because they feel embarrassed or they feel stupid or or there's all this other stuff going on and actually if we think about that sort of barrier to some extent that's created by it being text rather than voice actually sometimes that's a a good barrier yeah um and so that I, i don't think there's necessarily a straight read across to say okay therefore you know, genetic counselling, AI bots, boom. You know, I don't think it's that straightforward. But I think it is interesting. Humans are complex, right? And actually sometimes yeah. what what humans need, what different humans need in different contexts is also going to be different. Yeah. But okay, so let's, let's take a, a step right back and kind of lift our eyes to the horizon. If we get all of this right, what what would the... This, this system of um, genetics, genomics, um, you know, professionals being in, engaged and informed, patients and uh, like research participants being informed, what do you think we should be shooting for in, I don't know, the next kind of five to 10 years um, in this space? Like what, would, what, would, what would good look like? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> People, people, are, people aren't just referencing Gattaca anymore. <laughs> no, that would be brilliant, actually. Um, I think really what we need to be aiming for is to have a system that talks to each other so that you've got, I mean, I I love the NHS. I I, I do love it. And having grown up in a different healthcare system and working in a different healthcare system, I do think the NHS has a lot of positives about it that other healthcare systems don't have. Um, And one of those is having an NHS number that just follows you around everywhere. And it would be great to have any um, relevant genetic or genomic information um, that is attached to that um, and then is available to anyone that that sees you so that you don't have to kind of 
repeat the same story over and over again, especially if you're seeing multiple different specialties. I don't really think that's unique to genetics and genomics, um, but it's just something that I think would be exceptionally helpful um, in this area, especially because, you know, many people with um, a genetic condition will be seeing multiple different specialties and may not always be seeing the same doctor within those specialties or the same nurse within those specialties. Um, and I think that would just that would just help. Um, I suppose one of my other, yeah, thinking into the future would be perhaps in five, 10 years, that actually my job doesn't exist anymore in the fact that education, the education is out there. We've got it integrated in all relevant training pathways. Um, We've got, you know, it's more of a maintaining of the program as opposed to developing new um, resources or identifying new education needs, that genomics is just part and parcel of um, healthcare education. And it's just seeing like, you know, anything else, because, you know, we don't have, there's not an anatomy education program within Health Education England. It's just something that it's there, you know, you've got good resources to support it. And I would love genomics to be like that, even though I'm probably talking myself out of a job uh, with that respect. (laughs) I think it's a I think it's a great point, but I think that's part of um, both the excitement and the kind of time bound nature of doing something that's cutting edge, right? And yeah. um, I remember about eight or nine years ago, I was interviewing someone for a chief data officer role, and I asked them kind of a similar question, like, "What would success look like for you in this job?" And they they actually gave a similar answer. They said. Um, well, the success for me would be that this job ceases to exist yeah. because just like this organization doesn't have a chief literacy officer <laughs> because we assume that everyone can read, yeah. um, you know, we don't need this. So, um, well, I will I will look forward to seeing what you do next, <laughs> Michelle Bishop, <laughs> when you've solved this problem and uh, educated everyone to the point that they need no, no further education. Dr. Michelle Bishop, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. Um, all of the best of luck with all of your many endeavors. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.